0: Welcome to People Doing Physics, the podcast that explores the personal side of physics of the Cavendish Lab at the University of Cambridge. I'm Paolo Molignini and I'm a postdoctoral researcher in theoretical physics here at the Cavendish.
1: And I'm Simone zaire Barque, a PhD student here studying experimental physics. Joining us this month is Dr. Diana Fusco, lecturer in biological physics here at the Cavendish Lab. Diana is an amazing example of what it means to have an interdisciplinary and curiosity-driven career. Her scientific journey started at the University of Milan, where as an undergraduate she focused mainly on theoretical and statistical physics. For her doctoral studies at Duke University, she took her first big jump and pivoted to computational work in soft matter physics and proteins. After that, she switched gears yet again and embarked on a postdoc in experimental microbiology at Berkeley. Diana then joined the Department of Physics here at the Cavendish in 2018, where her growing research group now focuses on understanding bacterial biofilms and the coevolution between bacteria and viruses, employing a wide range of tools from microscopy, to theoretical modeling, to computational simulations. In today's episode, we'll ask her about her unusual and adventurous journey through the disciplines, the differences and intersections between theoretical and experimental sciences, and what it's like to not just find your path, but create it. Stay with us. So welcome, Diana. Can you tell us a bit about your background, where you're from, and when did you have your first encounter with science?
2: Uh, Yes, I started, uh, uh, well, I'm from Milan, close to Milan, and uh, I encountered science quite early on, actually, because my dad uh, is a chemist, Mm. uh, so he introduced me to science quite early on, way too early, probably, (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, and uh, I always enjoyed, in general, science and nature, uh, so I would, also my mom's side, even if she was not a scientist, she would just take me out, and. make me watch and observe nature quite a lot. So when I then I started high school I got very interested in
1: science especially physics and science in general. Mm-hmm. And so your studies in theoretical physics in Milan you specialize with a master project in statistical physics which is very theoretical. Um, what drew you to kind of the theoretical side of, of physics? I,
2: I always loved math and doing things with uh, pencil and paper mm-hmm. and I actually thought initially that I was just going to be a purely theoretical person. I actually hated experiments. I thought I was going to break anything. <laughs> uh, and I even hated programming in the beginning, like, and computer
1: simulations. So it's kind of interesting how then I ended up where I am now. Mm-hmm. And at what point did you start to get interested in kind of the biological side right because now I mean now you work in biophysics so when did that interest come Yeah of this was
2: uh, purely fortuitous actually uh, so my the the, the professor I wanted to do my master project that just happened to have a project that had application in biology even if the tools we were using were purely theoretical and stat- based on statistical mechanics so it was just by chance that uh, all of a sudden a new aspect of biology opened up and I got interested in to, a a new way of looking into biology, not just as a list of names that one has to memorize, but actually as a fundamental rules that are hidden, but uh, should be looked at. Mm -hmm.
0: Very interesting. Um, So after your master, you decide to do a big jump and pursue a PhD in computational biology at Duke University. How was your experience moving to the States and uh, was the academic environment different there? Yeah, It was very
2: traumatic. <laughs> <laughs> it was a big jump, and for the first six months uh, uh, I I really regretted having done it. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, both because of how uh, the academic world is in the US, uh, which was very different from what I was used to, and also because of the jump, like the discipline jump, which was very, very different from what I was used to. I was the only physicist in my class in computational biology. So I would say that I didn't know while while my mathematical and theoretical background was very good and gave me the tools to proceed. I didn't know anything about uh, the uh, biological background that I needed. So it was a really long and steep learning curve for the first
0: year or so. And uh, you started doing your PhD, but things are not going great, <laughs> as you said. Uh, You have lots of biology to catch up on and also you and your advisor are not on the same wavelength. Uh, And you even consider quitting. So uh, what were the problems?
2: Yeah, so so how my PhD program worked is that the first year we would just do rotations and then we would pick uh, the PhD advisor in uh, our second year. And I picked an advisor I thought was great. Uh, but somehow it, yeah, it didn't work out. Uh, it was mostly uh, I felt that I was not really becoming the researcher that I wanted to become. Uh, it was a very very small group. My advisor was very hands on, and I felt like I was mostly just executing tasks rather than developing my own research ideas. Uh, so in the middle of my PhD in the around the third year, uh, I I just I was very, I was miserable. Uh, and I truly thought of quitting and just going back to Italy trying to find a job. And the only reason why I didn't was that my, I actually talked with my graduate uh, committee, uh, which we had in, uh, in, the, in the States. And they convinced me that uh, the problems that I had were not just because I was not cut out for doing a PhD, but was just uh, like a mismatch with my PhD advisor. And uh, uh, they convinced me to try to look for a different project and a different advisor. And I followed their suggestion. And well, now I'm here.
0: (laughs) So what would you tell to a student who is in a similar situation with that knowledge that you have now?
2: I, I would definitely uh, tell them to uh, not think that they are the problem and keep everything for themselves, but actually talk with other people, especially not just like their cohort, like other students, but even other PIs, uh, because they might find out that this is actually way more common than uh, uh, what they think. That's also what I found out, actually, once I, I started talking with people. I realized that many, many people, uh, many, many students actually switch PhD advisors, yeah, so common. it's very fairly common. So not to feel at all that it's their problem.
0: So in the end, you switched PhD advisor and continue with a project on soft matter. That's good. And can you tell us a bit about that project? It involves something called self-assembly, if I'm correct? That's correct,
2: yes. Uh, So partially, so my my previous PhD project was all about a mathematical evolution. Uh, So it was very different from what I'd done before. So when I switched PhD projects, since I had only a few years uh, left, I wanted to pick a project where I felt that my physics background would have been more helpful. So that's why I went into more soft matter and computational physics. Uh, um, And again, the the application was a biological application because we were applying these tools to proteins, Uh, but uh, the tools that we were using were all about Monte Carlo, molecular dynamics, uh, uh, self-assembly of, uh, of protein, coarse-graining of, uh, of protein. So uh, that's the kind of uh, work that, uh, that I was doing. And I was very, very lucky to have my PhD advisor that uh, was excellent in initially guiding me uh, quite closely and in a hands-on fashion, but then letting me eventually, like, fly, wings, <laughs> spread my wings, exactly, and find my own questions.
1: And so after your PhD, again, you were in the mood for another change. And you said that you, in our previous chat, that you wanted to do more experimental research. So um, could you tell us a bit what kind of motivated that um, switch to leaving the, you know, the computer to one side and getting your hands involved in the experiments? And also um, how you ended up finding your postdoc, um, because obviously that, that's not just like a field switch, but also a skill switch. Um, so how did it, was that?
2: Yeah, so what happened at the end of my towards the end of my PhD, uh, we were doing theoretical work and computational work, we had all these predictions that we wanted to test, but it was very hard to find labs that would be available to test our predictions because they had their own priorities. And I got quite frustrated that, you know, you make these predictions as a theorist, but then you never know whether they're going to work or not. Mm. So at the end of the PhD, I said, well, that's it, I'm going to do my own experiments <laughs> then. So I tried to find a postdoc lab that would take a purely theoretically trained person and actually teach them to do experiments, which was challenging because obviously when you hire a postdoc as a PI, you hope to, well, to have a person that is already trained to do, mm-hmm. or mostly trained to do what they're supposed to do. Um, so after a long search, uh, uh, I, found, uh, I found a couple of PIs that, that were willing to do that. And uh, uh, these PIs were willing to do that because they I had a very very similar path there, so they often started as a theor- as theorists that then moved mm-hmm. later, especially during the post. So they knew it was
1: possible to do it. <laughs> so they knew it was possible, and they knew there was value in actually doing this jump. And so, how did you kind of get those skills when you arrived? Like, was it did you have a kind of training process that you had to go through? Um? Oh yeah, that that
2: that. Thing. So uh, so when I uh, eventually like joined my experimental lab, it just. So uh, my my postdoc advisor told me, OK, that's great. I'm happy for you to come on board. But there is this summer school, actually, that I think will be very useful because it will really train you to use pipettes that mm-hmm. i never even like touched before <laughs> <laughs> and grow some microbes and uh, uh, things of this kind. So. Two days after my PhD defense, I was on a flight to the West Coast to start this five weeks intense uh, summer school uh, uh, to learn the basics of microbiology. And that really set me up so that I could hit my uh, the, the ground running when I started my postdoc. It was really helpful.
1: And so, I mean, it sounds like a great opportunity to to have the time and the, the space to learn those skills and, and, and get that experience. But it's interesting that you've pivoted so much. I mean, a lot of people would have continued to do the same thing, you know, they would have taken their master's and then been like, oh, maybe I'll like find a new topic, but slightly related and then just go deeper and deeper and deeper and specialize further
0: and further and yeah, further. That's, that's the often, standard way of doing Yeah, that's the way
1: that people research. imagine, yeah. you know, researchers um, doing their careers. And so, I mean, you did exactly the opposite of that, right? Like at every possible opportunity, even within your PhD, you were like, another switch. <laughs> um, and despite not having that in-depth, like no, uh, previous knowledge that somebody that maybe has spent, you know, six years working on, I don't know, experimental microbiology has, When applying to that postdoc, you know, you still managed to to get there um, and also succeed in that role once you had it and you still push through that. Um, So where do you think this attitude comes from or what kind of what's your approach to, to science? Because it's so different from what people might initially expect. Yes, I think, I, I don't know, I think a bit,
2: I, I get a bit bored sometimes of uh, the same question, so I like to explore different things, but I have to say that now after like all these years, I, I felt the same when I was doing this, oh god, I'm jumping again, and I, <laughs> <laughs> it's going to, I have to start from scratch uh, uh, again, but actually now with hindsight, I I do see a past and connections, because actually considering the research that I'm doing now, I am borrowing from each of the topics I touched and uh, merging them together to find a new way to approach questions, even if the topic uh, is Mm -hmm. uh, now specific and and a bit different. But I definitely use tools and ways of thinking that uh, these other fields have uh, taught me. Mm
0: -hmm. It probably gives you some sort of advantage as well, because you can approach things from a different perspective that others Cannot acquire just because they don't have the same path.
2: Yes, I I think I well first of all I question anything. I never trust.
1: Mm -hmm. Uh, You don't have (laughs) bias from. I'm not biased. I learned this in undergrad.
2: (laughs) I'm not biased by having been in the field for a really really long time Mm -hmm. and assuming that something is known. I actually keep digging and digging until I'm really satisfied with the question. Most of the time I'm not satisfied with (laughs) uh, with the answer that I find. So that's why then I start doing uh, Mm -hmm. research myself. yeah, so I think I think it works out. I don't know if I would recommend it. I have to say that it's been very challenging because every time you had to start from scratch,
1: um, but it worked out. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess when you were pursuing those changes in your career, were there people that you that you knew had had success with that type of journey, or like what made you believe that it was it was possible besides obviously belief in your own and trust in your own ability?
2: <laughs> <laughs> so I I I knew people that had done that, uh, though I was. Uh, Warned against it mm. by those people because mm. uh, they 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 did uh, other friends uh, that knew them or themselves uh, told me that it was going to be very challenging and it was going to set me back. Uh, mm-hmm. So I was warned against it, but I never really followed suggestions. Pretty <laughs> much like if I was convinced. That I mean, I and you were right, it, right?
1: You know. you you showed us today that obviously yeah. you know it worked We're giving proof that it yeah, works. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, do you think that now there's a shift towards more like interdisciplinary science? Um, do you think that people with career paths like yours actually are you know best placed to lead those intersections between the different fields? And do you think people kind of accept that journey more or like are actually interested in doing that um, more because there is so much intersection now between fields that maybe wasn't happening so much before?
2: Yes, definitely. I think it's becoming much, much more common compared to when I was starting, for instance, uh, grad school and it's very valued. How, I mean, anymore, how I think about this, I don't even think there are disciplines anymore or Mm -hmm. or fields. Everything is a bit mixed and you can borrow from one and apply to another. And I think that's the way actually to to go forward because uh, these divisions that we put in uh, disciplines, I mean, are are ours. Nature Mm -hmm. doesn't have divisions. Yeah, (laughs) It's just nature. Mm -hmm. So it's just something we, a framework we, force on, on the questions we, we ask, but there's no reason why it should be there.
1: Yeah, I guess sometimes having that rigid framework yeah. limits you from seeing a, a
0: question or an answer
1: Absolutely. that you would otherwise...
0: Yeah. So it's more goal-oriented and question-oriented than discipline.
1: Exactly. So that's
2: how I, I uh, tackle my, my project. So I have a question I'm very interested in and I'm going to acquire whatever skill and whatever tool is necessary to get to the answer. Mm-hmm. Doesn't matter where it comes from.
1: So let's talk a bit about the experiments you actually did during your postdoc. Um, now that we know how you got there. So you worked on the theory of bacterial evolution, mm-hmm. is that correct? So what did you study exactly? How do we, how do we study the evolution of bacteria? Yeah. Bacteria are great uh, right. to study evolution
2: uh, because their generation time is very, very quick. Like every 20 minutes, they replicate. So mm-hmm. uh, in some way, evolution is linked to this generation clock. So for us, you know, for, to acquire mutations, it would take thousands of years, uh, instead for bacteria, it may take just a few days, so you can actually watch evolution as it happens, uh, which is why I think they're great to to study this. Um, So what it means uh, uh, theoretically, I guess there are uh, uh, models that we use uh, uh, to work we implement uh, uh, the evolution on top of a a population and we make predictions. And then because we can actually watch evolution in bacteria, we can actually run the same experiment and then really compare in parallel the predictions of the uh, model with what happens uh, in the experiments, which, for instance, wouldn't be possible necessarily with studying evolution in higher order organisms Mm -hmm. like us. So you look at how like the mutations change in their genetic... Exactly. So I was mostly in, for my postdoc, I was uh, really mostly looking at how mutations appear in their genome, what kind of uh, uh, changes they, they confer, for instance, in the context of antimicrobial resistance. So mm-hmm. that was something we definitely looked at uh, a lot. Uh, in particular, what we were really interested in was uh, how I know it sounds strange uh, to physicists, but somehow biologists don't think about that much, uh, how the role of space, so the fact that uh, bacteria uh, may interact only with their neighbors, uh, mm-hmm. and only like locally, rather than in a mean field way with uh, everyone, uh, affect actually their, uh, uh, both their chances to um, uh, acquire mutations, and also how likely are these mutations to then be forwarded Mm. Uh, to their offspring. So interestingly enough, this makes actually quite a big difference in in their evolution. Mm, Very interesting. Mm.
3: We now take a break from the interview to look at some of the latest news coming from the Cavendish. This month, we're looking at a cosmology experiment based in South Africa and developed through an international collaboration. The University of Cambridge is one of a group of institutions from Europe, America and South Africa that collaborated on the International Hydrogen Epoch of Reionization Array, or HERA, project. HERA is an array of 350 radio telescopes dedicated to observing how the first structures condensed in the very early stages of the universe. These were the first stars and galaxies that lit up space for the first time around 200 to 500 million years after the Big Bang. By mapping the intensity of radio waves produced by neutral hydrogen, the so-called 21cm hydrogen line, Hera will help cosmologists to map the density of the universe during the time when reionization took place which will help to better understand how the first cosmic structures formed. This is similar to how the cosmic microwave background radiation is used to map the earlier recombination period when the universe first became transparent. Hera builds on the success of a previous generation of instruments and it took six years to build the 350, 40m diameter dishes that make up the 300m wide hexagonal array. The 21cm hydrogen line is a very faint signal, which is easily masked by interference from television transmitters and the Earth's ionosphere, so HERA had to be built in a secluded rural area. By using local suppliers and artisans, HERA was able to support the local area and demonstrate how international investment into astronomy research can benefit the region that hosts it. In an interview with the South African Radio Astronomy Observatory, SARAO, media team, Ziad Halde, project manager for HERA, said, With a creative approach and some careful considerations, the smaller, less technically stringent projects can be successfully executed, the parts manufactured and supplied, labour sourced and managed, all using the resources available in the Northern Cape. This strategy facilitates employment and spending in sectors that are not the province's main financial drivers, such as mining and agriculture. Adding to this, Dr Belinda de Swart, SARAO Programme Manager for the Strategic Partnerships for HCD and author of the HERA Impact Study, said South Africa has become a destination of choice for the hosting of international astronomy infrastructure. This includes small astronomy telescopes, instruments and experiments in astronomy that can be easily plugged into the existing infrastructure on operational sites. HERA represents only one of these co-hosted instruments for an international collaboration of scientists. The impact study shows how South Africa can benefit from smaller-scale, co-hosted instrumentation through business development to the employment it can create for people living in some of the most impoverished and rural geographical areas in the country. Nationally, the development of the HERA project has boosted the participation of South African researchers in the collaboration. This has been made possible through the continuous financial support towards masters and doctoral scholarships. The increased participation of researchers based at local universities will help to develop South Africa's representation in world class research. Speaking on the benefits of this collaboration, Dr. Eloy Delera Sedo, head of Cavendish Radio Cosmology, says our participation in Hera has been and continues to be a wonderful two way enrichment process. On the one hand, we have provided to the project our deep insight on the instrument design, gained over years of work on the square kilometre array telescope development. This is now translating to the first high-impact scientific results. Conversely, our researchers have gained a wealth of hands-on experience on a project that has a much shorter timeline than the Square Kilometre Array, and is already observing and feeding fundamental information to the cosmological community. On the other hand, Cavendish astrophysics researchers have been able to participate in a multitude of field trips to the Kauru Radio Reserve in South Africa, to work on the construction and commissioning of the radio telescope. This has allowed us to meet, work with, collaborate and learn from the local expertise and people, and hopefully we have contributed to the local development as well. This relation is far from finished with HERA, since the local connections we have established over years of work on site are now proving fundamental for the development of our own REACH radio telescope, scheduled to start observations in the Karoo during the latter part of 2022. If you want to find out more, links to the impact study and articles referenced here will be added to the show notes. Welcome
0: back to our interview with Dr. Diana Fusco, university lecturer in biophysics here at the Cavendish. Before the break, we were discussing uh, your postdoc at Berkeley. At that time, your results got published fairly quickly and received a lot of interest. At a conference, uh, a PI suggested you apply to other positions. So how was the experience of applying for more senior roles?
2: Yes, I was definitely not prepared. I was, I was, I was just two years into my uh, postdoc. I finished my PhD only two years before. I definitely felt I was not ready. Uh, my postdoc advisor definitely didn't want me to. Because
1: yeah. <laughs> you just started. <laughs> because yeah. I had
2: just started, yeah. and he thought that I was going to stay for quite some yeah. extra time. Um, but I thought, well given also like talking with friends, given how hard it is to find a position, I thought, well, it's going to be good practice anyway. At least maybe I can get an interview, interviewer, maybe I can uh, uh, practice and maybe the following year when I'll apply for real, mm-hmm. uh, I, I will be more experienced. So I put together my material to apply very, very quickly, basically in just a couple of weeks or three weeks. And I started applying to the US job market because that's was, that was the plan um, to where I we thought we were going to stay. Uh, and I initially didn't get any interview there. I think for many of them I applied even late after the deadline. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then uh, uh, this uh, position at the, the Cavendish uh, arrived and it was uh, delayed because I guess the UK uh, market was a bit shifted compared to to the U.S. market, so I had time to actually put a bit more effort into my my application. And to my surprise, I was (laughs) selected for the interview, so I came here then uh, Mm -hmm. uh, in uh, 2017 for for the interview. Um,
0: So initially you did not plan to move to the UK, like you said, you were planning to stay in the U.S., Uh, your husband is American, um, so uh, how did you marry your personal situation and this professional opportunity uh, to Cavendish?
2: It was tough. I mean, we had uh, a, a long conversation whether uh, uh, to come here or whether just uh, stay, try again another year in, uh, uh, of interviews basically in the U.S. I have to say he was just very supportive and uh, I was very lucky in that sense. I think also his job was very supportive because they allowed him to uh, move here and keeping his job and working remotely. Mm. Uh, so so that was a, a, a good setup and it wouldn't have necessarily worked uh, otherwise. So mm. we we're lucky in that sense.
1: But I guess either way, applying to the Cavendish and having that interview, even if you had decided ultimately not to to come here, it would have given you, you know, knowing that you, you know, you can have that position, it gives you um, kind of the confidence to then apply back yeah, in a different market because you know that the project is viable.
2: Yeah, definitely. So I felt, for instance, in my second, mm-hmm. because I, I received the offer from the Cavendish when I was already starting to apply actually for mm-hmm. my second round. And I definitely felt you're completely right, like much more confident that, mm-hmm. well, maybe there was something there and it wasn't, <laughs> it was not a complete waste of time.
1: So I guess that the moral of the story is apply to everything, even if you think you're not prepared, because you might yeah. be prepared, but also it'll prepare you for next time. <laughs> That's yeah. right. It's yes. just free practice. It's just yeah. free practice.
2: So you, yeah. And you, you always prepare material that then you can use later. So it's never mm-hmm. wasted time.
1: So then you applied for the position in 2017. You had the interview. You found out you got the job. When did you move here? Was it in... So I, def- I, defer,
2: I defer the year mm-hmm. uh, because, well, partially because, my, as I said, my postdoc advisor was not keen mm. on mm-hmm. uh, me leaving so so early. And second, because I also didn't feel ready to, to actually start yet. Yeah. I had many projects that were still going on. I wanted to uh, acquire more skills uh, in the safety environment of a mm-hmm. postdoc rather than by myself while starting a group. And I'm glad I did it. I think I, uh, if I hadn't done it, actually, I wouldn't have uh, uh, encountered bacteriophages, which is the other direction, like the second direction that my group actually
1: takes. So uh, it was definitely valuable. And, uh, yeah. mm-hmm. and so then when you moved here, I assume the pandemic started quite soon after.
2: Yes, so really? I moved here in 2018, but then I went to maternity leave relatively mm-hmm. quickly. So then when I came back from maternity and when when finally things were starting to
1: get normal, the pandemic hit. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so what was it like starting your group in, in that environment, I guess, in that situation? Uh,
2: it was tough, I think, especially for the group. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so my, my first student, uh, who is graduating soon, actually, Um started when i started and it was just him we didn't even have a lab really set up or mm-hmm. anything i remember he, we didn't have a microscope so we were using a camera to actually taking pictures of the colonies growing he had to be well he had to show a lot of uh, initiative and mm-hmm. thinking out the box yeah. uh, which I think was helpful, I mean, in the long term, because I really developed him as a, as a scientist, but it was challenging. Uh, then I also, I basically was here with him for uh, three months. So then I left uh, for maternity. We, we tried to meet re- regularly, but uh, it was still challenging. Fortunately, I had a postdoc more or less starting at the same time when I left uh, for maternity. Mm-hmm. So he, he at least was not alone, and mm-hmm. uh, they were the two of them. Uh, but. Uh, it was, I'm sure, uh, compared to like definitely the PhD experience I'd had, uh, he had a much rougher time, though he says he, he enjoyed it. So, <laughs> <laughs> and he's
1: graduating fine. soon, so it's work
0: everything worked, <laughs> worked out. out. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> so, let's talk a bit about your research. So, you said you just mentioned the bacteriophages, but when you start, first started working with bacteria, um, you, you weren't working on bacteriophages, and then in that final year in your postdoc, you started learning more about that. Can you tell us a bit about what your group does and about the science of it all? A bit? Yes,
2: definitely. Uh, so we w- we mostly have two research directions. One uh, is uh, more focused on biofilms uh, and just like bacteria communities and uh, uh, in uh, in this topic what we really are interested in is how bacteria have developed their plasticity somehow, to, so to Um feel and sense uh, the cues that the environment uh, uh, sends them and uh, the envir- the, uh, what their neighbouring cells are actually doing and switch behaviour depending on this. So obviously, uh, so th- this switch happens not because of mutations or anything, it's just like different uh, pathways, uh, different uh, behaviour that are activated in the cell. However, how this plasticity and this ability to switch between uh, uh, one behavior and the other appear has been evolved over the years. And indeed, several of the bacteria that we find in the wild exhibit this uh, this behavior. So uh, the goal of this project is really to understand how this plasticity has been uh, uh, evolved. And um, uh, to do this, what we would like to do is basically break it. And then see how whether they're able to evolve it again. So that's what one side, uh, one project really is. The other uh, direction instead is on the, the evolution of bacteriophages, which are the viruses that infect bacteria. Uh, so here also evolution is quite interesting because both the virus and the bacteria evolve very fast, so they can get into this arms race of who evolves Resistance, virulence, resistant virulence in a continuous uh, uh, race. Um, so, what uh, we study here is that, well, the revolution, is specifically, what we're trying to understand is whether there are some fundamental rules uh, that uh, we hope to uh, get glimpsed at uh, through, through physics um, that uh, give directions uh, depending on the environment of uh, where. Uh, this community of viruses and bacteria will uh, uh, evolve towards.
1: So could you tell us what kind of experiments you run to study how these bacteria and bacteriophages evolve together? Like, how does that work? What, kind of, what yeah. does it look like?
2: Yeah, so, so uh, we do a lot of evolutionary experiments. So how an evolutionary experiment works is actually the simplest possible experiment that one can run. Uh, one starts a community, let's say a community of bacteria, and you let it grow for a while and then you select some bacteria for certain properties and it's this action of selecting only certain bacteria that then allows evolution to kick in if you want.
0: So by selecting you mean you literally go into the like your petri dish and you just take the, those bacteria that have certain properties exactly. and you, you reuse them for like another iteration? Exactly,
2: and then you go for, through another iteration and you keep going like this, several iterations, and then by constantly selecting those that have been are, are more and more in line with the property that you want, then mm-hmm. you can uh, sequence them and see what kind of mutations actually have appeared right. in their genome. Uh, and uh, correlate these mutations with uh, their behavior and phenotype. Mm-hmm. So to give you like a very, very simple uh, example, uh, an experiment that uh, we have done was to evolve um, viruses that would spread in a two-dimensional colony of bacteria as fast as possible. So what we did there was inoculating like, some of the virus on the colony, on the petri dish, Let the virus expand and then pick at the very edge. So, when you pick at the edge of the expansion, you're picking for the first viruses that got there. The Mm -hmm. fastest. The fastest, fastest exactly. And so you pick and you re inoculate again and you keep going. And indeed, after, like, because evolution is so fast. After two weeks, we got a virus that uh, is five times faster
1: than uh, Mm -hmm. the ancestor. And these viruses are not dangerous for for you You to wear hazmat or
2: anything? (laughs) They, in fact, only bacteria, and they're bad only for bacteria. You could drink it and you would be completely fine. I won't, but... but. (laughs) It's good to know. It's good to know.
1: And and you said in our interview prep that you mentioned that um that there's cur- that the current models that are used to understand kind of these uh, evolutions don't really predict what you see in the in the experiments that well or there's some discrepancies. What what are these discrepancies?
2: Yes, so so this uh, especially for so for this viral experiment, for instance, we have uh, a, a model and it's based from a long history, like well, almost like fifty years of wow. modeling work yeah. actually on uh, uh, on this specific environment that predicts uh, that uh, the way in which uh, the only way in which the virus should be able to uh, exhibit this five times increase in speed is by basically reducing their incubation time, so the time they spend inside the bacterium and uh, uh, reducing their probability of actually infecting a bacterium. This seems a bit counterintuitive counterintuitive maybe, but the reason behind this is that if, when the virus is inside the bacterium, it cannot diffuse forward. So actually there is a trade-off between infecting mm. and, of and, and not and diffusing yeah. and spreading yeah, yeah, yeah. when you are selecting for a very, very fast mm-hmm. virus. So that's the reason why, that's the prediction that the model gives. However, when you go back and you measure like the virus' so-called phenotypes, so their probability of infection and their incubation time, we don't find what the model predicts. So we mm-hmm. find that uh, they're comparable actually to their, uh, to their ancestor. So we have this big mystery in this experiment mm-hmm. where obviously the virus is spreading faster, well, but really we have that. no idea yeah. how it's doing that. Yeah. We okay. have mutations, so we know it has mutations. We don't know what these mutations are actually doing because mm-hmm. we can't Sorry,
0: measure it. And... So a big part of your research deals with biofilms, like you mentioned before. You explained a bit already what they are. Can you tell us a bit more? Um, you mentioned they appear in interfaces. There is also medical issue tied to them because they can appear on prosthetic legs, medical equipment, and so on, right?
2: Yes. So so uh, the reason why there's a lot of interest in biofilms in general... Well, first of all, it's one of the main ways in which bacteria live in the wild. So in this conglomerate and aggregates, uh, they normally form at uh, interfaces, either solid air, solid liquid or liquid air. Uh, they are uh, uh, very dangerous for the health of people. so they can form anywhere even on uh, surgical instruments that have been completely sterilized, they can still survive. Mm-hmm. And the main reason is that they form this uh, uh, polymeric matrix that uh, protects them from uh, any chemical or uh, um, uh, harsh environment uh, that we'll is a like uh, a normal. Or yeah. it's really <laughs> like a shield. Uh, so they can survive for a really long time in the worst and harshest conditions. I mean, we find biofilms all the way from the hot springs in Yellowstone, mm-hmm. uh, to our body, uh, to the soil, like
0: anywhere. Mm-hmm. Okay, that sounds very interesting. But I want to talk a bit more generally about your approach your research. Um, you mentioned before that you have more of a bottom-up approach, correct? Um, so what do you mean by that? And how does it compare to the top-down approach? <laughs> yes, so
2: what I mean with bottom-up is that I really try... So what I'm interested in, probably because I come from a physics background, are the fundamental rules of uh, the community, for instance, that uh, we're looking at. So to try to find the fundamental rules, it's, it's hard to use a very complex system and just gain insight because there's so much going on that mm. you don't know and you can't control. So what we do actually is peel layers and layers and layers until we go to the very, very basic, basic ingredients. So we start with one bacterium, like uh, uh, sorry, one, one species of bacteria, two species of bacteria at most uh, in environments that we can control and perturb uh, really exquisitely so that we know exactly what's going on and we can uh, uh, gather a lot of statistics mm-hmm. to be very quantitative in what a minimal change is uh, is going to do. So once we understand that, uh, using like going back and forth between experiments and modeling, because the modeling plays the uh, key role of actually knowing exactly, because you know exactly what goes into the model. So you know if you put those ingredients in, that's the output, and then you compare with your experiments, and if it matches and say, okay, then I think I do know and I kind of understand what's going on there, and then you start adding a layer of complexity, and then another, and then another to build up all the way to some uh, complexity that is more uh,
1: um, parallel to what you may find in the Mm wild. So you start with something simple, and then you add the complexity as as you go. (laughs) Instead of starting with a giant. (laughs) You mentioned that
0: (laughs) some biologists have uh, the kind of other approach, which is uh, the top down where they start from like a very general yes. setting and then they try to dig in, so how does that work?
2: So often they're interested to a very specific system that they find uh, uh, in the world, and uh, also in, in that case they also try to perturb it or just uh, see how, um, if, if for instance they pick one system and then another system, how they compare. Um, they they are normally more based on uh, collecting a lot of data and trying to find patterns uh, in this data but that often doesn't necessarily give you a mechanistic understanding uh, of it cannot what's be going translated
0: on. to a yeah. to a different system it's more Uniquely describing that system mm. that they look at.
1: Yes, that, at least that's my opinion on. But I guess both approaches are are required to fully understand the complexity of the <laughs> system. Completely, yes. like they, they, they meet completely, somewhere in
2: the middle. <laughs> I agree. They're are com, complementary. Like I, I, mm-hmm. I, the the fact that I we don't do that. That's I'm not saying that they're not important and mm-hmm. they're not very useful. And we hope that uh,
1: going one way and the other way eventually will meet in the middle yeah. and that. Yeah, because yeah, I guess those big changes, studies, everything. you know, flag up things that might be you know variables that could be interesting and then you can go and figure out what are the mechanisms behind exactly, that and exactly then, you know feedback into each other very yeah. interesting so to conclude um, we want to ask you a bit about the future you know what's next for your research um, you're also trying to come up with a course for quantitative microbiology if I remember correctly
2: yes <laughs> um, so it's something we have been uh, so from uh, from for, for the research side we have uh, several questions that uh, are really interesting. and We're really digging into uh, the the uh, nice and maybe bad things about this question. Is that the more you dig, the more new questions pop up. Is not all research, yeah. though. <laughs> That's all <the> research. <laughs> so uh, we keep rather than, well, we answer some questions, but then we create a hundred more, so I think we'll keep going for for a while. You said
0: something very interesting during the interview prep, that sometimes you ask the experiment a question, but sometimes it's the experiment asking you a question. That's correct.
2: Yeah. Or the experiment definitely tells me, like in the case of this evolutionary experiment, we can't understand, that, that the question I asked was wrong. Yeah. Uh, ask again, please. Yes. Yeah.
0: Ask another question. Ask
2: yeah. another question. Uh, so I think on the research side, that's, uh, that's where, And we keep being driven mostly by curiosity and uh, trying to tackle uh, whatever f- interesting phenomenon really we see. From, uh, uh, from a, uh, I guess, uh, uh, learning side and teaching side, uh, I am uh, go- going back to, this, uh, to your question about uh, interdisciplinary mm-hmm. and uh, um, how it's becoming much more uh, common. I really would like with uh, some collaborators to set up a, a a nice course to really train quantitative microbiologists in uh, these skills that actually mm-hmm. we use, uh, for instance, in the lab very, uh, every every day.
0: A bit like that summer school that you attended. Exactly,
2: yeah. <laughs> a bit like the summer school that I attended that I found mm-hmm. really extremely valuable. And, yeah.
1: And from a personal side, can we expect another pivot? Or, what? or do you think <laughs> you finally found your, your niche? I think, I, think I'm, I think I'm happy.
0: <laughs>
2: no, we'll All right. see.
1: All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Diana. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Diana. Thanks to our guest, Diana Fusco, and to our producer, Chris, for this episode. The news today was brought to you by Jacob. If you want to learn more about what's been discussed in this episode, or want to join or study with us at the Cavendish please go to phy.cam.ac.uk forward slash podcast. Thank you for listening in to People Doing Physics. If you like the podcast, please subscribe or leave us a review. We would love to put your questions to our team of physicists. Send us your most pressing ones on Twitter using the hashtag PeopleDoingPhysics. You can also email us at podcasts at We'll be back next month, bye!